Aloha and welcome back to Sup FM. My name's Simon Hutchinson and in the Sup FM podcast I talk to people who can inspire and add to your experience of the sport of stand-up. And in every episode I talk to people who have either done something incredible in Sup or who can offer some learning and insights and knowledge which can help add something to your time on the water. This episode is brought to you in association with Starboard. Starboard has a long history in board design, and you can listen to the man himself, the creator of the brand, Sven Rasmussen, in episode 71, where he talked about how he first entered the windsurfing market with his innovative designs back in 1994, and how the brand became the market leader within a decade, and that did not happen accidentally brand spotted the potential of stand-up paddling very early and has got behind the sport ever since and while focusing on reducing their environmental impact they've been continuously improving and innovating their boards and their paddles for all abilities and you can find out more about starboard through their website which is linked to in the show notes you can catch up with sup fm podcast on instagram and facebook but if you wanted to keep it old school We've just relaunched our SUPFM email newsletter, which goes out weekly with a whole lot of value-added updates on future episodes, SUP news, starter packs and added extras. And if you subscribe, then as a thank you, you also get our guide to our favourite paddle apps for free. And you can subscribe by heading over to our website, SUPFMpodcast.com. This week, we've got two interviews for you. And they're both around the almost endless opportunities there are to paddle across Europe. This is something that we've discussed in the past already, particularly with John McFadgen and his incredible adventures to sup the world. And if you haven't already had a listen to him, then check out episodes 41 and episode 60. And please don't miss his story about the inflatable flamingo. This week, we've got an interview with Veronique from Sup and Sea who is an ambassador for Decathlon Sports and who's written a guidebook about paddling in Belgium. And for anyone in Northern Europe, and obviously in normal circumstances, Belgium is super accessible and very beautiful, and the beer and the chocolate is a bonus. Later in the episode, I talk to Chris McDonald, who's just completed a 55-mile paddle from Mallorca to the island of Ibiza in the Mediterranean. And he gives us a glimpse into his preparation and his experience of doing this over 15 and a half tough hours on what he describes as the roughest paddle he's ever done. And bear in mind, he's also paddled the Zambezi Rapids. So let's kick off with my chat with Veronique from Sup and Sea. Hey, Veronique, welcome to Sup FM. Thank you, Simon. Well, it's great to chat with you and to talk about the SUP scene in Belgium and the best places to SUP, which I know you're an expert about. And hopefully we can chat about SUP Polo as well. But something we generally start with is a quick introduction to you. So how long have you been SUPping and how did you first get into it? So I started my first SUP session. It was in 2017, in March. I was in Macedonia and it was on a lake. So I saw a support and I tried, and it was really a, a re- revelation, revelation, as we say in English. And after that, I did a longer trip a few months after that when I was in the um, Philippines. 
And then when I came back, I was really uh, into it and, and I bought a well, that's quite quite some start, Macedonia and the Philippines. But in terms of your first experience, were you, you know, as we say in English, like a duck to water, or you know, how, how was the the first time when you stood up on a board? Magic. <laughs> first, I was a little bit afraid because I didn't really know if I would stay on the board or if I would fall, right? Mm-hmm. And I directly felt it was for me. It's incredible, isn't it? The way that it gets its hooks into you really, really quickly. So um, something that we've observed in the UK with all of the disruption that we've all had over the last 18 months is people getting more and more into SUP. Is that something that you've seen in Belgium? Yes, the stand-up paddle is really blooming in Belgium. People really have the need to be outside, to reconnect with nature and uh, to discover their own country. So it's really blooming also here. It's a great way of of seeing the country in a very different way. I know in Belgium, you've got quite a short coastline, haven't you? But I know there are opportunities for surf on your coast, I think around Ostend. But there's also an incredible network of flat water and canals and so on. What is that network like? Is that something that you can use to sort of travel around the country? Travel around, I'm not sure because, of course, we have the locks and we cannot go through the locks. It's forbidden. So you cannot travel from maybe one city to another. Sometimes it's possible, but not all the time. But it's a great way to discover the country, stay on a lake, do uh, a circle on a canal or on a river. That kind of thing is possible, of course. So you can do multi-day trips, I guess, if you don't mind sort of picking your board up and just walking it around. Is that, is that how it, that would work? Yes. We have se- section where we can do maybe 30 kilometers. Then you can park a car at the first stop and a car at the last stop. And then you can really travel like this. And then we have also big lakes where you can spend the entire day if you want. Loads of opportunities there. And just seeing as I'm going to nerd out on this, because I'm really thinking about Belgium as, as an opportunity to go out and spend a weekend. Do you have to buy licenses to go on the canals and the lakes and so on? How, how does that work? Because you have to do that in the UK. No, in Belgium, there are not so many rules because it's really new. So there are no tickets to buy, no license, nothing. Most of the places are free. Some lakes are, are private, but you can really go there without any license. So it's easy. And of course, Belgium is the home to uh, sports nutrition or my brand of sports nutrition, um, chocolate and beer as well. So that's uh, that's another um, bonus. So just in terms of the, the SUP scene, obviously it's growing in Belgium. I know that as a country, you're very competitive, particularly around football and, and cycling. What about SUP racing? Have you got any races that go on there? Are there any classics that uh, people take part in? Uh, there are some races, but they are not uh, really famous, I would say, for the classic stand-up paddler who is doing that on the weekend. So we still need to make a lot of noise around this. There was a SUP race last weekend in Namur on the, the river de Meuse, which was very successful. So yes, we have some races, but I'm not a professional in that kind of, of events. I will surely participate once, but uh, I cannot give you so many more information about that, unfortunately. So let's talk about places to paddle in Belgium, because you wrote a, a book about that subject. It's in Flemish and French. 
And it's a great guide and it's got SUP advice and also those key locations across Belgium. And uh, I know it's in a huge amount of outlets there, including Decathlon, which uh, for those outside Europe, it's a huge, huge superstore full of sporting equipment. So it's quite something to, to get into those outlets. But could you just talk us few, um, through a few of your favourite places to paddle in Belgium, some of your recommendations? I think that we, we can make a difference between the city paddling and the nature paddling. So if we look at the city paddling, I really love two cities, Ghent and Mechelen, which are Flemish cities and they are super cute. So you are really in the center of the city between historical buildings. You go under beautiful bridges and it's really yeah, you really feel like you are belonging to the to that medieval middle age city. So I really like this, and it's super easy to access. So you can also stop in some bars and have some beers and chocolate. So that's really nice. And on the other side, if we look at nature, which I prefer actually, we have a lot of rivers, lakes. But one of my favorite would be the one in the south of Belgium. It's called uh, the Lake of Nisramont. It's a uh, it's a huge lake, and when you are there, you almost feel like you are in Canada. So it really gives you that feeling of being alone, especially when you go there, not in the summer, but maybe in fall or during the winter. The place is really beautiful in every season. So I would say uh, this lake is my favorite lake, but it's really difficult for me to give my preferences because I really love all those places. They are also nice river in the Wasteland, who are also really cute. So a lot of beautiful spots. Brilliant. So you captured all of your favourite spots in the book. So when did you decide to write it and, and how long did it take? Because I know these things always take a lot longer than expected. So when I started to paddle years ago, I was just sharing some pictures with my friends and because I'm a, let's say, a, a big traveler, I, I travel all the time with my backpack. They were always thinking I was in a foreign country. <laughs> but I was saying, no, no, I am in Belgium. Oh, really, really? And then I saw the interest of the people that they really didn't know the country from the water. Then I decided to do this Instagram account and to give uh, practical information because people really wanted to know where to go to enter the water. It was very difficult to find information in Belgium on Internet. There was really nothing. So I started to do that and collecting really the information, the pictures and, and so on. And then it was uh, logic for me to put everything uh, in a guide. So I started that actually in the book. I did it at the end of uh, last year, starting in September like this. And it was ready already for this season. Well, that's a very quick turnaround, particularly with all the photography in there. So in terms of the, the, the routes that you've got and um, and the locations, what sort of mileage are there? Are they sort of great big long trips or, or sort of short leisure paddles? You can do long trips, but not 300 kilometers. If you do 180, I think you cross Belgium from France to the Netherlands on the, on the, the Meuse. So, of course, it's a small country. But yeah, you, you can do some distance, I would say, like this, if you really want to go for a long paddle. But mainly people, they do between 5 and 10, right, if, you do le if they do leisure paddling. <laughs> I don't know whether you did this on the back of it. You started a website as well to look even further afield because, as you mentioned, you paddled in a, a number of countries. 
And it's a website that's designed to, to collate paddle locations internationally. Just tell us a little bit about, about that site. It's, it's www.subnc.com. NC, you write it like seeing and not the sea, right? Uh, and why? Because the goal is to sub and see the world. So I started this platform really to be able to share my spots, but also to get information from other people. And, and you can create a spot. You choose what kind of category it is. Is it a lake? Is it a river? Is it the sea, a beach or whatever? And then you can put pictures, precise information, Google, you know, Google Maps information to know exactly where you can enter the water, what you have to see, if there is a parking and stuff like this. And everybody can put the info and then you have a map. And if you are, if you are somewhere, you can find a place. And that's why it was easy for me to put everything in the book because I was already collecting all this info for myself on all my spots. So all the information was already in my head and in the, in the, in the platform. And it's a really good resource. And there are similar sort of sites available, but this one's got a particular focus around Belgium and Europe. And there are some spots there which look like real secret spots that you, you wouldn't be able to, to find otherwise. Yes, exactly. Some spots are really unknown and it's a great way to, to make it a little bit more famous. <laughs> well, tell me a bit about your, your international travel and, and supping outside Belgium, because it sounds like you, you've been to quite a few countries. Just, just tell us a bit about some of your travels and what, what was it like supping in the Philippines? Oh, it, was, uh, it was really amazing. It was um, on an island, it's called Bohol. And we did a sunset paddling on the river. Of course, yeah, you are surrounded by nature and it's a different nature than what we have here, right? So it was really peaceful, water was warm. It was really, yeah, a paradise. So I really liked it. Of course, it was easy to paddle there. There was no current. So it was really, really easy. It was really where I fell in love, right? Macedonia was great, but when I was in the Philippines, it was like, okay, <laughs> I need to do that every day <laughs> absolutely so so would you say philippines has been um, your favorite place to paddle so far hmm, it's difficult to say it it was one of my favorite of course because it was my first one after macedonia where i really did the long trip but uh, otherwise i really like croatia because of the clear water also the the sea is calm you have a lot of places where you can paddle without too much wind and uh, you have a lot of little caves to discover or little arches you can go under. So Croatia could be also in my in my top. And I also like the lakes in Austria and in Germany, which also are surprisingly with clear waters. So I would say also uh, those lakes are really in my top destinations. Obviously, stand-up paddle is... is fairly new and my life has been split into times before sup and and after sup and my before sup I always look back on locations where I've been to and I think oh I'd love to have my paddleboard then and Croatia is definitely one of those places I spend a bit of time down near Dubrovnik and, and and that coastline and you know you're absolutely right there's so much going on and it's so unspoiled whereabouts were you in Croatia when you were paddling? Where about in Istria, uh, more in the north, 
Mm. Um, I really liked it. And as you, uh, sometimes I'm thinking, oh, if I had my board there, if I had my board there, <laughs> I would have seen it totally, totally differently. So uh, we need to go back to these destinations. Exactly right. And, and, and also, you know, the Austrian and German lakes, you know, you've got that clear water coming down. And I think there's something about mountains coming down to water that makes mm. it so magical. Yes, yes. You really feel small if you are paddling on a lake between the mountains and uh, it really gives a, a, a feeling of uh, freedom. I really love it too. So in terms of your bucket list, you've paddled in some great locations. Where would you really like to go um, when everything unlocks? Mm. There is a nice cave I would like to visit in Austria where you mm. can really go inside a cave in the mountains. So I think for a winter destination it would be that. If if we stay in Europe, mm -hmm. but of course Norway, yeah. <laughs> paddling between the fjords, I think it must be amazing. And I see a lot of beautiful pictures also from Lake Tahoe in the US. Mm. Also, Florida looks very exotic for a destination. Actually, I could go, I think, everywhere. Yeah. If I feel already that Belgium is so beautiful, I guess mm. that the other countries must be even more amazing. Well, exactly. I think one of the, the good things, if there are good things to come out of uh, us obviously being restricted, it's about concentrating on your own area of the world and uh, just getting into that in a bit more detail. Because, you know, you can go at a sort of surface level in these other spectacular locations, but there is some real joy in going deeply into your local area, into your country. Have, have you found that? Yes, definitely. I really, I really found that that feeling, and uh, sometimes it's just at the corner of the house, right? And uh, you pass that river for one thousand times, and then now that you discover it from the water, it's completely different. Let's talk a little bit about stand-up paddle polo because that's something that seems to be growing in the UK and I know it's something that you've had a, a bit of involvement as, as well. How's that going? You've started playing haven't you? Yes I started playing really recently and uh, wow I really love it. It's, it's amazing. It's so fun. It's so uh, yeah you get tired after that but it's such a great great moment to, to, to be on the world uh, playing in the nature compete against other. I really love it. Yeah, really to practice balance, it's uh, it's the best. And it's quite new in Belgium, actually. It's really not popular at all for now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that people have, have um, struggled with is finding locations to do it. And there aren't that many, I guess, um, swimming pools and so on that allow you to do it. There's a few outdoor pools and so so on that allow you. And obviously, uh, if you're doing it on the sea, then that creates its uh, its own problems. What, what about you? Where where do you play it? So this is organized by, by a, a man and a, a wife and they have like a company called Vesispor and they organize this on a lake. It's a lake, mm -hmm. Azelwinkel. So it's a beautiful lake and they have a field there that they, they have to inflate and deflate each time we go. So it's not on, a, on the sea, it's not in the swimming pool, it's, it's on a lake. Mm -hmm. And yeah, of course, you're in the middle of the nature. If you're lucky, you can see a beaver going uh, at the really at the at the end of the lake. So it's really cool. And in the summer, the water is not so cold, so that's nice. It's a great way of learning skills, isn't it? On the board, you mentioned about balance and having played it a little bit. 
it really did help my technique, particularly moving around the boards, all of that sort of stuff. What moves have, have you got to learn since you've been doing sup polo? Yeah, what I never did is to jump on the ball on the board and uh, turn around, because mm. as you know, the board for sub polo they have uh, fins on both sides, right? So mm-hmm. that you can go in one one side one way and the other way without turning the board. So uh, yeah, I really learned how to how to jump on the board and how to be <laughs> on one side and then the other side without falling. Which which normally when when you just do a simple session. You, you just try to stay on the board in the middle, right? <laughs> you don't begin to, to jump around. So, yeah, I think really uh, jumping and turning around the board is the, the main uh, thing that you learn when you start sub-polo. And do you find that that's helped your general pattern? Yes, yes. It mm. gives give me confidence. I mean, obviously, it's a new sport. You've only started recently. Are there any teams or, or leagues setting up in Belgium? I know we're still at the very early stages of that in the UK. So actually now there is only one field and it's there. So they are the only, they are the only one who are doing this. This year is just a training year, I would say. Next year, they will really build the, the team. Yeah. And on Saturday, there is the Belgian Championship taking place and against some Dutchies who are coming also. <laughs> Wow. So that's three teams potentially we could pull together for a a World Cup there, Belgium, Holland and the UK, because I know that there are a few teams Mm -hmm. over here as well. So uh, maybe that's something that that we can work on. Um, Veronique, thank you ever so much uh, for talking to me today. It's been fascinating to find out about Belgium as a destination. And um, just remind me of where we can find out more about you and about your book and the website. Yes, mainly on Instagram, on the Sup and C page. So S-U-P-A-N-D-S-E-E, Sup and C, Sup and for the collaborative website and uh, same for Facebook. Veronique, thanks ever so much for talking to us on SUPFM, and maybe someday we might meet on the water. I hope so. Well, thanks to Veronique, and we'll start working on that SUP Polo World Cup competition immediately. My second interview this week is with Chris McDonald, who recently crossed the 55-mile stretch between Mallorca and Ibiza. But before we get into the details of that trip, we talk about some of his other epic adventures. Hi, Chris. Welcome to Sup FM. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. You've got a pretty meaty water resume. And what I'd like to do is to chat about some of the adventures and the events that you've been involved in. And the most recent of those is your adventure abroad, where you crossed the 88 kilometres stretch between Mallorca and Ibiza, which are islands in the Mediterranean Sea. And you completed that in just over 15 hours. But that's not the only challenge you've completed on a SUP because you also cross the English Channel and you're also um, one of the few people to have descended the rapids of the Zambezi River in Zimbabwe. But before we talk about all those trips, it hasn't always been about SUP because in a previous life, you were a competitive kayaker and you took part in quite an extreme event over in Austria. Um, the Sick Line Adidas um, Kayak World Championship. Could you just tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved in it? Yeah, so my first paddle sport that I got involved in uh, was kayaking, and I started just paddling harder and harder rapids. And when I was 18, I decided to enter the Sick Line World Championship. So that's the youngest you can enter it at. It was definitely one of the best experiences of my life. I think it was just paddling 
up and close with my heroes and my idols because you know all the like famous Red Bull guys were there and I just learned more about myself and about the sport in that week than I have done in a long time so yeah that was an amazing experience and that was in 2016. Let's tell us a bit about the course there. The competition obviously has stopped now, but there was a, a, a course which was utilised annually and it was quite an extreme rapid, wasn't it? Yeah, so there was actually two courses. There was the qualification course and then the finals course. I mainly stuck to the qualification course just because for me, it wasn't mainly about racing. It was just the experience of like paddling those rapids and the qualification rapids were still at the upper end of grade four pushing grade five um they started at the bottom of, of a grade five rapid so yeah i was mainly focused on that but it was just absolutely amazing to watch like all the athletes paddle the course the competition only ran over two or three days but everyone including myself they got there a week earlier and just was paddling the course and everyone was so supportive of each other sharing tips sharing the lines helping less experienced paddlers um, like myself at least compared to a lot of people there so it was the community around the whole event that I really liked and really like took away from it. How did you first start with stand-up paddleboarding coming from a, a kayaking background? So I went to Falmouth Marine School to do uh, a BTEC in water sports. I lived in Cornwall in Falmouth and stand-up paddleboarding was a sport that I hadn't really heard of before I went there and they really focused on it and I got my instructor qualification there as well, my B Super. And then what really drew me to the sport was ISUPS because I can't drive. ISUPS just opened a whole other, just made the sport um, a lot more accessible to me compared to kayaking. Yeah, I definitely was I was managing with kayaking. I've met so many amazing people who have been really happy to support me just by like lending equipment and picking me up from the nearest train station, for example. But being able to take an ice up, pack everything you need in a bag and take it on public transport was just, yeah, that really made it for me. Now, you got to paddle the Zambezi or the, the, the rapids in the Zambezi in, in Zimbabwe, and you did that both on a kayak and a sup. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you got the chance to go out and do that? Yeah, so I used to write for an online magazine called Dirtbag Paddlers. Um, it no longer exists uh, on a big scale. We had a lot of admins of the Facebook page and editors and writers all around the world. And I just got in, in touch with one of the editors, Paul Teasdale, and then he, he, he invited me out for six weeks. Just I camped in his back garden. Yeah, we paddled the the Zambezi either by kayak or, or paddleboard most days and we got up to lots of other fun stuff over there as well I headed out in 2017 yeah for six weeks with him but without him it definitely wouldn't have been possible without him so, so tell me a bit about paddling the Zambezi then because you know it's quite a challenge honestly quite it's British understatement there it's a challenging stretch there. How on earth did you convert from paddling, you know, the white water of North Wales to paddling the Zambezi? So I think because I was really lucky to spend six weeks there. I just, I built it up slowly. There's lots of rapids there, the kind of like grade three or what, what they call grade two, but would probably be grade three, four in the UK and just build it up slowly. Yeah, I definitely didn't jump on like the famous rapid number five on my first day. And then 
but yeah, following Paul and like the rafting companies as well down there, it just just paddling with people you know the river inside and out they paddle it literally every day it just improves your confidence massively and they just show you where to go and there's lots of rapids out there that you know aren't that are definitely manageable for an intermediate paddler and so I started on them and then just worked my uh, worked my way up really so what's the difference between taking rapids on a on a sup and taking them on a kayak I mean, are there any benefits of one versus the other? Can you see the lines better on a sap? So I guess like standing up, you can see further afield, especially when you're looking over rapids that drop quite a bit, steep rapids, because you know the horizon line is on your vision will be different when you're standing up. Also, when you do fall off, which is obviously going to happen, climbing back on a paddleboard is a lot easier than trying to sort out when you swim out of a kayak, which did happen on a few occasions. A lot of the rapids were kind of just you're going to fall off, see how far you can make it. And then there were other rapids that you could generally try to stand up the whole way through. But it's just a case of wearing a good buoyancy aid for a starters. Yeah, a good yeah, a good buoyancy aid with lots of flotation in it and just holding your breath, really. After a while and after a few big swims, you do kind of just learn that it does flush you out eventually. It doesn't, doesn't tend to hold you so much. It just flushes you out. So you don't actually tend to get stuck in places that much compared to some rappers that I've actually paddled in the UK. Well, that's that's reassuring anyway. And, and absolutely right. It's the value of learning whatever stretch it is that you're paddling, be it sort of rivers or, or, or sea stretches. So in terms of whitewater, are there any more places on the bucket list you, you've got? This will link into like the charity later, but I've never been to South America before. So when I hopefully eventually go to Peru I want explore other places in South America and they've got amazing rivers there that I've seen so that's definitely on the list I was lucky enough to go to New Zealand in 2019 as well so I've paddled which was amazing so but yeah South America is probably next on the list for me and let's just cover the English Channel because obviously that's a, a classic uh, route from the UK and you've done that also in a kayak and in a sup and obviously that crossing tends to be conditions led so did you do that in the same season or was it different seasons how did you manage to get all of that organized because sometimes people can last the whole of the summer and not manage to do it yeah so when I did it in a kayak and on a paddleboard around the end of July both times uh, it was two years apart it was 2015 I did it in a kayak and then 2017 on a paddleboard and I did have to wait a full week until I got a good a good day to do it both days kind of started off like perfectly both experiences are quite similar actually in terms of the conditions they started off flat as a lake absolute perfect conditions and then so it was about a 25 mile crossing with about 17 18 miles in then it started to get a bit choppy but that's when your experience really comes into hand and yeah I'm used to paddling in in choppy conditions so it wasn't too much of a problem and, and how did that actually work because in some cases you have to sort of transition elsewhere because it's a pretty busy shipping lane yeah, isn't so, it? yeah so there's a few rules so I think how it works is the English Channel is each country or um, each major country has their own shipping lane and you're not actually allowed to paddle the, in the French shipping lane so what the safety crew had to do for me is I jumped in the boat they whizzed me across the French shipping lane, which I think is about a mile wide. 
and then put me back in about a mile off course. So I still paddled 25 miles. Obviously, you know, I did it with a, a support boat. It was a company that had escorted hundreds of kayakers and paddleboarders across the channel. So they definitely knew what they were doing. And what are the rules around landing? Were you able to touch the shore or did you have to just sort of hang about before you came back? Yeah, it's like, like I landed at the harbour. The safety crew just like helped back a little bit, just a few metres away from the jetty, I guess. And then when I was paddleboarding, I did actually have the French Coast Guard to zoom out and approach me. But they they just wondered what I was doing and they were happy for <laughs> me to carry on. But And then on the way back, it was quite funny, actually, because I had the police waiting for me and it was nothing bad, but what they had seen on the radar is the support boat going to France about five five kilometers an hour maybe six kilometers an hour in the kayak and then whizzing back at about 40 kilometers an hour on it so I think they were just wondering like why a boat crossed the channel um on the radar really slowly paddling speed and then whizzed across but they were just surprised I think (laughs) Well, I'm surprised that they're surprised because that, that's absolutely the, the place where crossings happen. So so just in terms of, of your crossing to Mallorca to Ibiza, so you completed that um, a few weeks ago. There's a great photo of you on the beach shortly afterwards. and You've just finished after 15 and a half hours and 50 miles of paddling. And not surprisingly, you're looking absolutely yeah, definitely. <laughs> Uh, how did that feel to step on shore after all that time? And did you still have your sea legs on? Um, it definitely felt weird walking onto the land because the night before I'd slept on a safety boat as well. I uh, hired a yacht for a three or four day window. So my sea legs were definitely, yeah, I definitely still out. In terms of the moment when I finished, I don't really remember that much, probably because I was just too tired. I was, I was just like, cool, I've done it. Let's, let's go home just because I was so exhausted. But. So let's just talk about that trip in a little bit more detail. And and first of all, you did it to raise money for Alto Peru, which is a Peruvian surf therapy charity. And if people are wondering what inspired you to raise money for a charity, which is obviously some distance away from the city of York in England, what was it about the charity that really struck a chord with you? So I found out about the charity through the BBC4 documentary, Into the Storm, which I would definitely recommend watching. It's one of the best surf documentaries I've ever watched, honestly. And I wasn't originally going to raise money for charity just because of like the current situation with COVID and some people, you know, and people being unemployed and raising money for a foreign charity, whether that was the right thing to ask people, you know, to donate for. But when I saw the documentary, I just, I got in touch with the filmmaker actually, and then he put me in touch with the charity. Mm-hmm. And then I just knew straight away that I wanted to fundraise with them, just seeing the work they do and how much it impacts the lives of the people there. And also what really struck me was a lot of the people that have been like products of the charity, so to speak, have, have gone on to work with the charity and like help the future generations. So that really appealed to me as well. And yeah, they're just an amazing charity. And I'm in, in touch with the guys almost on a weekly basis now. So we're trying to make a plan for me to head out there post-COVID. It's an incredible film. So Into the Storm, Johnny Guerrero, just tell uh, us the story about him because I also watched the film. It was one of my first lockdown films and I was also really, really touched by it. But this surf therapy helps people who are 
in impoverished situations and introduces them to water sports, introduces them to surf, all of the disciplines, connects them to nature and it had a really massive effect on Johnny Guerrero who obviously is the, the star of the movie. Just talk us through the movie and what the subjects were covered there. Yeah so it mainly focuses on Johnny and just his upbringing. It probably won't surprise a lot of people that in Lima in Peru they do have quite a big problem with gangs and drugs and all that leads to violence and a lot of crime so he was probably heading down that path and then just fell in love with surfing and then he was obviously a natural at it the charity helped him and then if I remember correctly I think someone from I don't know if it was like the national team or something or some scout basically like picked him up and and offered him an opportunity to co- to train full-time and he's yeah he's one of the best in the world he's competing he, I think he's aiming to compete on the world tour now so that's an amazing story for him personally but just finding out about the charity and all the amazing stuff they do through that documentary was just amazing. And I'd highly recommend that. And we'll link to that um, in the show notes. So obviously you prepared for this 50 plus miles between Mallorca and Ibiza is not something you just set off on an, on an afternoon. Just tell us a bit about your, your training because you worked a bit with Michael Booth, didn't you? How did he help you? Yeah, so... When I was working full-time in the UK, I was just on his basic plan just because I could probably get on the water about once or twice a week, but I was doing lots of land-based fitness as well. And then at the start of June, I had the opportunity to move to Mallorca for the summer and train full-time. And then I upgraded to his personalised plan. So he just made out a training plan for me. I had access to asking questions through WhatsApp. So amazing coach and yeah, definitely uh, recommend booth training. So I was following a training plan and I am really lucky to have the opportunity to train full-time. I was training about six days a week, paddling. I was probably racking up about 80 to 90 kilometres a week. So obviously that helped. And then I think the most important thing with training is mix it up a little bit. So the worst thing you can do is just head out every day and just paddle 20, 30 kilometres. Obviously that will help a little bit, but you will stop improving after time. So he got me doing various interval sessions and then anything from short one hour interval sessions to six, seven hour, 30 kilometer paddles. And did you get the chance to do any cross training? It's a great place. I know there's a lot of cycle training that goes on. Yeah, so it's one of the best places to cycle in the world. Actually, there's lots of pro cyclists who live out there and ex-pros and, and teams. I got a road bike out there and I think I cycled about a thousand kilometers in, t- in about a month and a half cycling is a great form of cross training for, for stand-up paddling as well because when you're paddleboard you actually use your legs not only to balance but to power through your stroke as well so yeah that yeah that definitely helped a lot the cycling and builds your engine as well in terms of the weather out there what conditions ideally were you looking for for your crossing because i presume that you you had to sort of pick the conditions very carefully yeah so ideally it would, would be no wind but that didn't happen I was planning to leave early morning when there was no wind and then in the afternoon the wind tends to pick up and then hopefully by the afternoon I'll be almost halfway and then it'll be the wind will be behind me which is kind of what happened but the general conditions out there tends to be a super calm in the morning and then you get quite a strong onshore breeze in the afternoon 
which worked quite well for training because I just paddled out, staying close to the coastline as much as I could. And then it was kind of a downwinder on the way back in the afternoon, especially on the longer paddles. And in terms of kit and the organisation and so on, you used inflatable board, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I used a 14 foot by 29 inch board by Loco Surfing, the company based in South Shields. They've actually been supporting me for the last two years because I do a little bit of sup surfing. I'm very good at that at the moment, but they make hard boards and inflatables. So I used an open water touring board. The reason I went for 29 wide instead of kind of your standard 27 race shape is just for the open water yeah and it was quite choppy so i definitely made the right choice of of choosing a kind of open water width spec makes a a lot of sense and what sort of stuff did you carry and you know how do you manage to get your nutrition sorted so i had a safety boat i didn't really take anything on the board actually i didn't even wear a hydration pack just because over that distance obviously you risk it yeah starting to hurt and restrict your movement quite a lot so it was just a case of I stopped, just sat down on the board every hour and had the support crew basically just throw me food and water. I eat just water, diluted Powerade as well for the like electrolytes and sodium and stuff. And then just various food from cereal bars to kind of mashed up fruits, like baby fruits, extra stuff. And just I think the most important thing with endurance is just keep eating, like be strict um, on your hydration and nutrition because... From experience, I can probably paddle for about five or six hours without eating anything or taking a break. But obviously, yeah, if I did that, I would have been pretty tired by by that point. So, yeah, just be super strict on the nutrition and the hydration side. And just, yeah, every hour is a good thing to aim for. And this is where the cross training really helps as well, you know, particularly cycling, because um, I've done a lot of distance cycling. And you're absolutely right. You need to eat before you're hungry and yeah, drink definitely. before you're thirsty because there is nothing worse. I think that they call it bonking where yeah. you just have no energy whatsoever. You have to sit at the side of the road and you're all all grey and sort of slightly perspiring and you just can't do anything and there isn't a worse feeling than, than that. Just talk us through your crossing. You, you started off at what time? Yeah, so I set off at five o'clock in the morning in the dark, which was interesting because it was quite choppy. And then... It started to get light about half six and then it was kind of just stroke after stroke and your mindset is so important. But yeah, with the support crew, like keeping up my hydration and nutrition, obviously that made that made a big difference. About 30 miles in, so 45, yeah, 40 kilometers or so, something like that. I did have a big dip in energy levels. I guess like I bonked, so to speak. And it just had a, I had a good like 10, 20 minute break or so. I think it was about 20 minutes just yeah I actually jumped on the support boat for a little bit and just had like a five minute power nap ate as much food as I could and then yeah just set, just decided to get back on the board and keep going it was about 30 miles in where I started to feel it but I think with endurance it's it's all mindset and like thinking of the charity and all everyone supporting I think that just keeps you going but yeah it's with endurance stuff it's definitely 99% mindset and how was the heat there? Because obviously it's a sunny place. It, it, you know, it can be very, very hot. How did you deal with all of that? So, yeah, hydration, obviously. And then a good tip for anyone who paddles in hot climates, don't wear short sleeve stuff. So I actually wore a long sleeve white rash vest, quite loose fitting. So that basically reflects the heat. So you stay cool. And I was actually all right. At no point did I feel like really dehydrated or really hot in it. I think the air temperature 
least during the day, it was about 30 degrees. So yeah, I think wearing a long sleeve white rash vest, which I hadn't actually done in training, made a big difference. I think, you know, it's really important, isn't it, to try all of those things out if you can. But but you're right, where you're covered, don't get too graphic about this, but when you're kind of sweating, when you're perspiring, that can kind of just sit underneath that breathable layer and just allow allow that level of insulation from the heat and you know particularly a, a white top that definitely sounds like a, a yeah, good yeah. so so obviously this was from island to island it's a huge distance between the two and generally at sea the horizon from a from a sup is about sort of three miles away so you, you must have spent some time out of sight of land how did you navigate did you use the um, support boat for that yeah definitely so it was 100 percent the support boat ibifa came into view of about i think it was about 18 miles to go so fair distance i'm not sure if that helped or not because it just doesn't seem to get any closer i think at the start paddling towards nothing essentially was actually quite hard and then at least mentally and then when ibifa kind of started to appear closer my energy level, my, my pace actually increased. Yeah, just just a sudden boost in energy levels, and my average speed actually increased for the last. My fastest section was the last ten miles. Somehow, <laughs> it's incredible how motivating that yeah. uh, that barside beer. Yeah, is. and I think that just proves how much of a mental challenge it is. In terms of arriving, we talked a little bit about your jelly legs get, sort of getting onto the onto the coast. I presume um, clubbing and Ibiza was uh, off the agenda. Yeah. The- <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So did you manage to spend any time over there or did you come straight back to Mule? I grabbed an ice cream and just chilled out on the beach. It was still light and still a nice temperature. The safety crew, so they kind of anchored up about 100 metres away or so from the beach and then he had a board as well. And so he paddled in with me, which was really nice. And But during the actual crossing, it was probably the roughest seas I've actually ever paddled in. And that was yeah, it was just that stretch of water, I guess, the two islands, obviously on a very big scale, that's like a sandwich for that stretch of water. It just squeezes all the water together. It was definitely the, the choppiest conditions I've ever paddled in. <laughs> I mean, it's like anything, I guess you get used to it, but if you've got chop coming in in all sorts of directions. So it wasn't too bad because it was roughly in the right direction. So when I was sitting down on my board, I was still getting pushed in the right direction a little bit. But I actually had to paddle probably 90% on my right side, which is actually my strongest side, uh, because of the swell direction. If I followed the swell direction completely, I would have missed Ibiza. So it was kind of in the right direction, but a bit of a weird angle, which definitely made it awkward. In which direction was the wind coming? It was be south, be coming from southeasterly. So yeah, it was kind of in the same direction as the swell as well. That sounds like it. So you you ended up with incredibly muscular right side of your body. It yeah. So in terms of your reflections on your expedition, and it's a phenomenal achievement being able to paddle for that long, and cover that amount of distance. If you were to do do that or something similar again, what sort of things did you learn from the experience that you'd change if you did it again? I did a fair amount of research into that stretch of water, but the one thing that did catch me out was the swell and like how big it was because during training I did a lot of training on my own and without a support boat so for obvious reasons I couldn't paddle too far out to sea so I think just being like it doesn't matter where you are in the world if you're 25 miles out to sea which is about the halfway point it's going to be choppy so I think that caught me off guard a little bit I still managed uh, to cope but yeah probably trying to get access to training more offshore 
um, somehow, <laughs> like with support boats. So that would have been like, a nice experience. Yeah, because like I said, it was definitely the roughest conditions I've actually I've ever paddled in. So, but I guess that you'd put the preparation in previously because your your white water skills. Yeah, must de- yeah, yeah, that definitely helped a little bit. It was kind of a rolling swell; the waves weren't breaking. But having a lot of my friends that I surf with, they all say my strong point is paddling out of surf, and I think that's definitely come from my white water experience, just paddling down rapids. But, so, what's next then? You've done all of these challenges. What have you got your eye on? So it'd be cool to dive into like the expedition side. Of that. That's definitely on my list. And then planning for the future, I'm hoping to head out to Peru and volunteer with the surf therapy charity. They've invited me out. So since Peru's off the red list, I should be heading out there for a decent amount of time. Thanks for sharing your experiences with us and really wishing you all the best with your future adventures. And we haven't mentioned that you're a bit of a globetrotting instructor that offer your coaching services online as well as in person what sort of things could you help us with so over lockdown i built a website i want to do more to help the sub community whether that's like in-person clinics like some of the guys of the northeast paddle up in south shields have mentioned that it'd be cool to get me running an endurance clinic and i think i'm ready to share my skills with the wider community and share my tips so i do have a website um, I do need to update it because I've been quite bad at that. But it's Chris Mack Adventures. Yeah, I'm fairly active on Instagram. It's Chris MacDonald 1998. Yeah, so that'd be really cool. And like, that's a, that's probably my most active social media platform. You can have a scroll down and <laughs> see what I've been up to. Awesome. Well, I wish you all the best with that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been awesome. And if anyone's got any questions about similar crossings or endurance, feel free to send me a message. Thanks for listening and I hope that you enjoyed that chat with Veronique and Chris and please check out the show notes for all the links. Chatting with Veronique was a bit of a revelation because Belgium has some great places to visit but I never previously thought of it as a great place to paddle to. Chris is very understated but has some great experiences already at a relatively young age. Zambezi and an open sea 55 mile paddle and a couple of channel crossings are not small achievements and we wish him the best of luck with his fundraising efforts. If you haven't already then don't forget to go onto our website www.supfmpodcast.com and sign yourself up for our email newsletter. We'll send you out our free guide to the apps we use on the water. We've also designed some SUPFM wallpaper for your phone. And as part of our weekly update, we'll supply you with our episode starter packs. Okay, well, thanks for listening. We've got a seriously exciting guest joining us next time on the show. But until then, we'll see you on the water.